So several strands of present events are weaving together into this morning's message. I honestly thought, after the men of Be Better together, that we might get back to the book of John. But no. <laughs> As I'm just praying, and Lord, what's next? How do we continue to follow your spirit, and what's the momentum that you're doing and what are you building what are you saying there are several of these current events are coming to mind and I'll share those with you and then we'll kind of weave it into this morning felt like God wants us to talk about revival so a few things that are on the docket happening right now there's the growing coalition of local churches and we've been praying together for four or five years now, a gathering of local evangelical pastors once a month for lunch and for prayer, and anywhere between 10 and 12 churches are affiliated. Sometimes four guys show up, sometimes 10 senior pastors, and we pray together, but there's something that's galvanized us recently. There's about seven of us now really committed to this mission of working together in regards to the the sexual health curriculum in the Menifee School District. So that's significant. Last week was also our pastor's prayer and lunch. That's just the reminder, again, the monthly reminder of the the need and the importance of coming together as local churches to pray, to practice the reality that we're on the same team. We're not in competition with each other. As well as last week happened to be, last Thursday evening was the National Day of Prayer. And uh, I got the opportunity, got invited, and it was a group that I really don't even know. I don't even completely understand why I got invited to be one of the speakers for this prayer event on Thursday night out in, uh, the, out in the, one of the local parks and uh, got the opportunity to meet a good, good chunk of you, 10, 15 of you came as well, and uh, got the opportunity to interact with four or five other different churches um, and uh, that I didn't even know and met, met the pastors and got to pray together, and uh, that's significant. And interestingly enough, the theme was uh, unity, unity among the body of Christ. I'm also thinking about men if you better together and how that was truly great. That's us practicing that out rhythm of looking beyond ourselves, looking beyond the walls of the church, looking for opportunities to serve the city where we live with the obvious hopes that we are bearing and carrying and bringing the good news of who Jesus is with us. And I thought you guys did a phenomenal job, heard no complaints. Sorry, thinking of a story I shouldn't share. <laughs> I heard no complaints. No, no. You can ask Tommy. He had a fun, he had a fun little uh, kerfuffle. Well, I'll just say that. He did nothing wrong. It was a funny, you know. His hedge trimming was being critiqued by a, a non-involved person. It was, it was hilarious. I'll just, as I watched this old man, like, stare at Tommy and literally, like, that's not how you cut it. That's not how she wants it. <laughs> and it's like, dude, it's not even your house. It was hilarious, but sorry, I'm not going to tell that story. Okay, (laughs) other than that, it went wonderful. Nothing but positive feedback. The people that we were actually serving thought we were wonderful, and uh, you guys were wonderful. Really had some sweet times of prayer. 
And uh, so it was great. So thinking about that and just what that means for us as a church, saying we want to continually find ways to get out into the community. And uh, even discovering that outdoor amphitheater there at the Sun City Civic Center. It's like 500-seat amphitheater, and you could fit another few hundred more. It's like the only one that I know of in the city. And I'm thinking, like, why not? Why are we not as, like, a bunch of churches in Menifee? I, I want to make this happen. You can pray for this. I think I'm going to share with the pastors. We need to get together and have a night of worship and prayer for every church in the city. I mean, you could fit them. You could fit 900, probably to 1,000 people there. And, and on a summer night, just let's come together as one church and pray and worship. And so these, these things are all stirring. And, and honestly, just you know, there's a word for that in the Bible. It's called revival of what, it would, what does it look like or what would it look like for a true revival to, to sweep through our valley where there's a move of, of God's tangible, powerful presence to such a degree that the thousands of people come to Christ. And there's a great and awesome enthusiasm and awe for who God is. And, and His power is felt in a way that it's really transformative of the norm. That the status quo of life is just turned upside down. And God's signs and His wonders a- a- abound in, in physical healing and deliverance from the power of the enemy and from the power of addiction and sin and the stuff that just gets people stuck. Those chains are broken that we love to sing and declare about. And God's presence permeates families and businesses and neighborhoods and schools and and even government. A true transformation of a city takes place. What would that look like in this area? What does that look like in the Bible? I'll take us to uh, one of my favorites on that. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47 describes what I would call a healthy revival. And God's presence breaks in and just does such great stuff. It says this in verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together for worship, breaking the bread in their homes, they received food with a glad and generous heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's beautiful. It's just the power of God's presence is there. And what's happening? Devotion to God, fellowship with one another, awe of God, miracles, generosity, true worship, joy, praise, favor in the city, salvations. That's awesome. It's beautiful. Yet, as we are fighting for that, that's a beautiful vision of church and how God wants to be so present in the life of a local church that it affects the whole city around them. So we fight for that. It's a a vision. It's a goal. It's a hunger. We're not content to say, oh, let's just hope that something nice happens in, in between these four walls. And good, that's great. No, that's not even close. That's the vision right there. That God's presence would so transform our lives that it would just spill out into the world around us, and not just for our church, but every church in this valley. 
And as we fight for that and hunger for that and long for that, there's also among many, especially if you watch the news too much, <laughs> a sense of, of real decay. Things are going in the wrong direction. So much outward depravity. So many things you can see, oh man, that's so against what the Bible says. Where evil is being called good and good is being called evil. And God is being you know, taken out of left and right the, you know, government and schools and Christianity has lost much of its influence on culture and church attendance is decreasing with every generation. So many souls out there are lost without an identity in Christ and there's this sense among many that it looks like and feels like, man, things are just getting worse, maybe irreparably, is often the, the narrative. So should we just kind of give up, get passive? coast un until death or until Christ's return. Kind of this just inevitable downward spiral. So those are kind of two tensions maybe you feel. And I want to this morning just take us both into a little bit of a narrative of history even in the United States and then into the biblical narrative on how God feels about those situations. The reality is there's always hope. To, uh, to quote a wise person from Star Wars, rebellions are built on hope. And I would say, as a follower of Christ, we are part of a rebellion against the prince of this world. When Jesus came, he said, no, the status quo, the one who's in charge right now, the enemy of your souls, we're not going to say that's okay. We're going to live in rebellion. We're going to follow the Father's kingdom and we're going to fight and he uses this language, and sometimes we got to be more okay with, like, there is a language of, of fighting and warfare in the Bible. It is not a passive just, oh, you're just be a daisy and be a God's kid. Like, receive that you're a God's kid, and, and there's an incredible love he wants to pour out. But you are also made to fight for his kingdom to be advanced. And that is clearly the kind of picture that Jesus pre presents to us, that there is an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy your soul. Well, if that's real, then you should probably fight. Right? And it's not this passive, okay, well, and maybe God's just going to take care of it all, just sit back and coast. No! He's training us on how to fight to release the abundant life that He wants. And so I want to take us through some, some of these beautiful stories of, of even U.S. history. And you could, I mean, go across the world, but... There is a deep and rich history of revival in this country. And, and just, you can Google it, and it's all over the place, because it's like, you cannot refute it. You cannot rewrite it. Like, no matter who would want to rewrite history, you can't do a proper history of the United States of America without referencing and digging into the dramatic effect that revivals, Christian revivals, had on the shape of this country. One of the early ones, I'm just going to hit a few, but there's, there's actually, like, many. What's often called the Great Awakening in 1734, this is before the United States is even a country. It took place in Massachusetts, very famously, if you, if you don't know revivals, Jonathan Edwards and um, George Whitfield are two of the pastors that became very well-known in this it is said that in this revival, it became so 
sweeping. People wanted to hear George Whitfield talk so bad that it's estimated that 80% of America's 900,000 colonists at the time personally heard Whitfield preach. 80%. I mean, they made a way. He traveled, but people made a way. There was such a hunger to hear this word of God. And Jonathan Edwards is credited with kind of having that see the first outbreak of a revival. He had toiled in Massachusetts for a long time and wasn't seeing any salvations. And then, as is described by one of the, the people who were there, they, this is in a book. It's the words of one of those who experienced it. It pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. And so, basically, that's old language, but it's saying it had become a formality, just kind of a religion, just going through the motions, and God's Spirit's hit in such a way that it set the people on fire. And what I love about that is it's a demonstration of how revival often takes place in the midst of moral decay. And that's part of what I believe is good news for us. It flies in the face of the narrative of, oh, it's just getting so bad. What's the next step? Oh, I just, it's going to just get worse and worse. Often to this, you know, we can never come back from it. And I would say the histories of revival in America show the opposite. It's often in those times of moral decay that God sends His Spirit, that people come together, churches come together, they pray, and God sends a move of His Spirit in such a way that it reverses or combats or fights against the, the, the present darkness. And that was the case of the first Great Awakening. And this Great Awakening, I mean, it, you think about the 80% of the people in the known American colonies at the time, made their way, sometimes at great cost to themselves, to go and get there. And it truly, it was a revival. It spread like wildfire into every, I mean, towns on the whole eastern seaboard, over 100 towns, experienced mass conversions. And I really believe that is what paved the way for the fiery and firm faith of the founding fathers of the American Revolution. I mean, they, they were children during the Great Awakening. 80%, I mean, you can just think about the, the cultural context. 80% of the people went and made sure they even just heard this and got to experience this revival in these big old tents. That, is, that permeated the culture. And our people like George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson and all the Adams brothers and these people that, that formed the Declaration of Independence, and if you look back in the history books, had this incredible, deep, firm faith in Jesus and in the Christian religion on which to found a government. They were kids in the middle of the revival. That's awesome. Or about 100 years later, there's a so-called businessmen's revival of 1857 and 58. That took place in the middle of an economic crisis, the middle of the bank panic of 1857. There was a number of different factors. It's kind of similar to uh, the, the housing bubble that burst in, in a recession about 10 years ago for us, but a, a conglomeration of factors. Europe was starting to hit some hard economic times. 
The U.S. was having mounting tensions in regards to slavery and moving towards the brink of civil war. And so in the midst of all that, a bank crisis brewed and happened. And people are freaked out about their money, so they're pulling it out. In the midst of that, God raises up a guy named Jeremiah Lane Fear, who in the middle of New York, where all the financial stuff's happening, he has this crazy idea. What if businessmen would look to God in this situation? And so he opened the church at noon. And this is September 23rd in 19, or excuse me, 1857, three weeks before the bank panic happened. The first week, six guys showed up. That's cool. I mean, six guys showing up to pray is, is a good thing. So six businessmen from New York. The next week, they had 20. The next, they had 40. And it had such a powerful presence of God, they decided to meet every single day. And then, for two years, every single day, and before long, other churches began to do the same, and it, and it spread. And one million people came into faith in Christ in two years. And that's at a time when the population of the U.S. was only 30 million people. So you think of the math. What is that? Is that 3%, 4% of the population in, in, in two years? A million people? I mean, that is dramatic. And right at the center of where there was crisis, there's an economic crisis. And so the businessmen of New York and God moves and a million people come to Christ in two years. That was beautiful. Or jumping ahead, we think of the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. That took place right at the, the height of the Jim Crow era of segregation. And it was 14, 15 years before women were allowed to vote in this country. And God raised up an African-American, happened to be blind in one eye, preacher named William Seymour. God's presence poured out in such a way in this little old barn on Azusa Street in Pasadena where, or Los Angeles, where they met regularly every single night for three and a half years because God's presence was so powerful. Even the local newspapers could not deny but to send people there because the, re the reports of these dramatic and strange and amazing healings of tumors shrinking and eyeballs reappearing and all sorts of dramatic physical healings were so commonplace that the, the, the local newspapers sent people regularly. They couldn't help but ignore it. It was the biggest thing happening. <laughs> and yet, even on a bigger scale, the reality that it was an African-American pastor leading it, when at the time, African-Americans weren't even allowed to go out after dark. There was a curfew law. And, and the, actually, the way they got that building was w William Seymour, or Philip Seymour, am I saying that wrong? Philip, somebody tell me. C Mr. Seymour. Pastor Seymour if, uh, needed a building because he got invited out here and then he preached the message on the Holy Spirit. Church didn't like it, padlocked it, said you can't come back. Started meeting in his house, presence of, on Bonnie Bray. God's presence fell so dramatically, they, it was exploded out of that place. They needed larger space. And he literally, the testimony goes, he felt like God said, get up and I'm going to show you where you're going to get funding to a new building. And maybe that's where Pasadena is in my mind. 
God told him to take the, the bus or the tram, whatever it was, to Pasadena and that God would lead him. Well, that was illegal. He could have gotten jailed for taking the tram or the bus, whatever it was, after dark because there was a curfew law, Jim Crow stuff. But God leads him and he shows up. He knocks on the door of this lady's house at like past like 10 p.m. And it's a group of women who are in there praying for revival. And he shows up and says, God's told me I'm going to be the one to bring revival and I need money from you to fund a building. Come on. Come on. And, the, and she's like, great. We've been praying for it. And, and so an African-American pastor and a bunch of women and youth became the primary ministers in the Azusa Street Revival. I've been reading a book lately on it. It's, it's fascinating. It's women, African-American, and youth, like under 18. And sparked one of the famous and great revivals in our country that has gone on to really, if you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit today, you owe it to them. <laughs> like, it, you cannot really source any denomination that believes in the, the gifts of the Spirit without having some roots right there on Azusa Street. That was, that was, that was God, one of the beautiful times that the church is moving ahead of the curve, <laughs> And it was, it was awesome. What about the Jesus movement of the 1970s? Some of you are part of that, right? No, maybe one of you. I don't know, two of you. Most of you, two, way too young. But there was, that was a moral decline, right? The 60s and 70s, you got the hippie culture, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And there was a dramatic move right here in Southern California on the coast. Of, of God stepping in and through that beautiful move of His Holy Spirit giving, again, kind of primarily the youth and young people an alternative of you don't need to go down this road of moral decay that our culture is going. There's an alternative. You can trust Jesus and you can believe the Bible. And that was actually a radical thing. It broke out across college campuses, 1970, Asbury College, which was a Christian college. But they were very much going through the motions. Just, just meeting. They had to go to chapel three times a week. Kind of the ho-hum. Supposed to be a 50-minute service. And some of the Jesus people were there. And God's Spirit descended in such a way where that chapel lasted for 1,850 hours. It just didn't stop. God's Spirit was so thick, so heavy, people didn't want to leave and they just kept worshiping. They just kept praying. They just kept going. I mean, what do you even do at that point? It's like, obviously, it's not, that's not one person speaking. That's not one worship leader. That's not, I mean, that's God's, he's just like, can anybody sing? Does anybody know a song? I mean, but God's presence was so rich and deep that it's like, they just wanted to stay. They just wanted to stay. And those are just, seriously, just but a few. I mean, it's a fascinating study to look up the history of revivals in the United States of America. And what I take away from that, and then when I look to God's Word, and we're going to get into God's Word now, I believe a biblical mindset for someone who's going to take God's Word as, as, as true and as promises. I believe a biblical mindset, in, the, in a new covenant mindset especially, 
where Jesus promises the power of the Holy Spirit, a biblical New Covenant mindset is that we, meaning you, your family, your church, your city, we are either in revival or we're preparing for a revival. That lukewarm mediocrity and passivity is not a biblical option. Just to kind of resign as, oh, well, things are looking bad. Oh, well, I got my ticket to heaven. I'll just wait it out. That is not anywhere in the Bible. We are called to fight. We're called to get in the fight and stay in the fight. Jesus said it like this. I mean, it's so much our DNA. He says, you are the what of the world? You are the light. I mean, inherent into our spiritual DNA, if we're following Christ, is that there will be darkness and our job is to shine. We're not to be scared of the darkness. We're meant to expect it. We're meant to be the, the thermostat that changes the atmosphere. Not, not just a, you know, a temperature gauge that temp, you know, measures the temperature of thermometers. Oh, man, it's getting bad in here. I'm out. No, we're meant to set the atmosphere by being the light. I mean, it's inherent into the very DNA of if you're a follower of Christ. Jesus says it like this is part of your identity. It's just who you are now. You're not made to run from darkness. Darkness is meant to run from you. Wherever your job is, or excuse me, wherever you are, your job is to shine in the midst of darkness. I mean, that's like inherent, so inherent, it should give us a confidence that either revival's happening right now or it's going to happen soon. Because God's will through us is to shine his light in a way it changes the darkness. But what if it's really bad? Like in Corinth. The city of Corinth, if you don't know, would have made for great TV. It was at the heart of an important trade route. This was back in you know, the first century when... Paul's planting churches and Christianity is spreading. The city of Corinth was uh, an important, excuse me, it was like a gateway city, part of an important trade route, a gateway city from, that connected Asia to Europe. And so like many metropolitan areas that have the, you know, the melting pot of so many different people, beliefs, races, religions, there was a, a lot of stuff it was actually known. I mean, it was actually known in the Bible for its extreme sexual immorality, which if I'm looking at it, I would call that a demonic stronghold, given Corinth had its roots in ancient, ancient times to a cult worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, a.k.a. the goddess of sex. So is it weird that hundreds of years later, it is still known as a very promiscuous, sexually immoral place? No. It's kind of easy to see. Oh, the spiritual world is real. And when you give yourself over to something in the spirit realm, it's going to have an effect on the generations to come. Oh, the Bible actually talks about that. 
sins of your fathers are going to get passed down. It just becomes a stronghold. So that's Corinth. They're a place known for sexual immorality. Even in the church, Paul, or even in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul rebukes what he calls sexual immorality that even the pagans don't do. So this is, this is a, the moral decay is, is deep. And what is Paul's charge to the people? 1 Corinthians 15, 57, 58. Yeah, you know what? You guys are right. It's bad. So go ahead and give up. Just wait for your ticket to heaven. Oh, wait, excuse me. Wrong passage. 57, here we go. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, your labor is never in vain. So in the midst of the moral chaos that would make us close our eyes, Paul's concluding charge as he closes the letter is be steadfast and immovable in your commitment to seeing the cause of Christ move forward. In other words, you see the moral decay? Yeah, it's real. Hunker down, don't give up, don't even be movable. Get anchored in Christ and continue to fight the good fight to see the cause of Christ advance. I like it. Also, in that same time, the government wasn't too friendly to Christians. There was this psycho named Nero, who somehow became the, the, the leader of the Roman Empire, and he persecuted Christians in a very nasty way. And he even is known to have rounded up Christians. I mean, it's illegal to be a Christian at that time by government's laws. You could lose your life. There's all sorts of historical evidence that shows that many Christians were rounded up and they were thrown into the Colosseum and they were made sport of to die at the, at the hands of, of vicious animals. One of the things that Nero did particularly that he's probably regretting at some point is that he rounded up Christians and he dipped them in tar, he put them in his front yard and he lit them on fire to be torches to decorate his palace. That's historically accurate. Many sources attest that. And it's in that context of, of government persecution that the letter of Hebrews is written. And in chapter 10, it says this. Verse 32, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that's a phrase for you're coming to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. Yet you had compassion on those who were taken to prison, and you joyfully, check this one out, I mean, whew, would that happen today? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property by the government, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and a lasting one. <laughs> yeah, okay. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, 
so that while you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Check this out. And if he shrinks back, this is a quote of Old Testament prophecy. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I mean, we got to see the, the context for what this is written. I mean, this is government-sanctioned persecution. They may take your property. They may throw you in jail. They may take your life. And the, and the writer to the Hebrews is saying, in the midst of that government-sanctioned persecution, don't shrink back. I mean, Christianity is not for the weak. There is a, a fight that God is calling His people to endure, to continue in the faith, continue advancing the cause of, of Christ. Don't shrink back. Wow. So far on the other end of than just being passive, just kind of letting it happen. Oh, guess this is happening. Oh, guess it's too late. Oh, guess it's just everything's going downhill. It's going to keep going that way. An awesome one for us to grab onto that just confirms God's heart for us is to trust that revival is God's will. Revival is God's heart. So if revival is not happening now, then we can trust that we're in a season of preparation for it. Acts 1.8, so famous. But that promise is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my ambassadors, my witnesses. You will represent me in power and action in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I will give you power to be my witnesses, my ambassadors. I will give you power, Jesus' promise is, to be like me to the world. So that you can earn the name Christian. That's what happened in this early church right after this or shortly after this. The church of the people at Antioch were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And their lives and ministry so looked like Jesus that they got named Christians. Which means little Christ. That's awesome. I want to earn the name Christian. I want to say, yes, Lord, will more of your Holy Spirit come upon me in power and in increasing measure that my life can be a witness to you and about you in such a way that truly I could earn that name Christian. I mean, yes, it's a free gift. But you know what I'm saying, that our lives would so represent Christ. It's like, man, it's like, it's like, it's like I'm reading the Bible. It's like Jesus is actually here. And this gift that Jesus promised, and this is where our confidence can come from, this gift that he promised, this power that he wants to bestow, is for every generation, in all places. It's the same mission until Christ's return. Our goal, our mandate is clear from Jesus. Matthew 6.10. If you want to break it down into the most simple terms that reveal to us the will of God, the heart of God, is for revival in every generation. Jesus taught his disciples to
to pray Matthew 6.10. May your kingdom come, Father, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If that's not a description of revival, nothing else is. When heaven invades and transforms earth. And Jesus taught us to pray like that. So I would say, therefore, I'm confident. We can be confident. If revival's not currently happening, it's God's will that it will happen. On earth as it is in heaven. Until the day we die, that's our mission and goal. So I see in all this, God, God just, in His Word, never gives us permission to give up. To slack off, to get passive, to, to flag in zeal. It's another Bible verse. It's never flag in zeal. Never, never get weary in doing good. Stay zealous for the Lord. Lastly, I just want to remind us, I believe this is one of the greatest ways we can worship God. Worship in here takes place through singing songs. That's one of the ways, and that's great. But there's also this way of when you give yourself for something, you spend yourself for something, you sacrifice for something, you, you go through the battles, you fight, you, you, you win some, you lose some, you get back up and you fight again. That's worship. Romans 12, 1 says it like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies, present your whole life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. So to, get, to go out there with the mindset of I am called to pray and act and represent Christ and then pray and act and represent Christ for as long as it takes until it catches fire. This is an act of worship to stay in that fight. And so for some of you who maybe, let's just say, maybe when you're worshiping, man, man this feels, this feels kind of soft. Well, okay, yeah, the songs are... They're not as rock and roll as, you know, some genres. But I would say, okay, I, can, I get that. I can feel that. But there's a remedy to that, and that's get in there and feel the power of the lyric, the power of the language. Get into the, the declarations of your own heart. Pray it. Pray those songs as worship and warfare. And you can feel the fight. I promise. But there's also this other beauty about we need to know there's something alive in us that, 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 that awakens when we know that we've got something worth fighting for out there in the world. And maybe it's just in my family. Maybe it's just for my marriage. Maybe it's just for my kids. Maybe it's just for my own heart and my own fruit. Maybe it's for how I think about work and my perspective on my boss. All of those things are a revival waiting to happen. Those are a worthy fight. Those are worthy to say, God, more of your will on earth as it is in heaven. And fight for it. Fight for it. See it as the battle for what it is. That the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy in that area. So therefore, it's a fight. And God wants to bring revival. And I want to close with one of my favorite quotes of all time. Mark Terry, feel free to scream. It's, it's, from, it's from Teddy Roosevelt. And it is very, very... Biblical in its 
in, in the mindset of what it looks like to fight to see the kingdom of God advance. Here we go. Teddy says this. In life, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood and who strives valiantly and who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause and who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who have never known either victory nor defeat. <sighs> Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be instilling in us by the power of your spirit that desire to fight, to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven until the day we die. And that we would never be overwhelmed by whatever amount of darkness or decay or depravity or whatever junk we see. Though it's real and it's hard to see, and yes, we're human, so we can get down and we can get defeated at times. I pray that we would be a church, Lord. We would be a people as individuals, as married couples, as families, and as a, as a larger church family. I pray that blessing, Lord, that you, by your mercy you would help us to have a vision and a power to present our whole lives as a living sacrifice, knowing it is an act of spiritual worship for you. And like these, these verses say, Lord, would you give us the power, God said, to never give up, to shine your light, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to always abound in the good work, to never shrink back, to be hungry for more of your Holy Spirit to empower us and to live every day, whether it's in our family, for our marriage, for our kids, for the own place of our heart and our own fruit, into our neighborhoods, into the schools, into our jobs, and to the highest levels of government. Lord, may we have a holy fire, not a man-contrived fire, but a holy fire to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, until the day we die. And may you teach us how to live this out. Teach us, Lord, for your glory, how to partner with you to live this out, to see revival sweep through our land, that you may be honored and glorified and your kingdom come. And that's what you went to the cross for, nothing less. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dance a new dance like David